Well, again, good morning. And if you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 40. And while you do that, I want to remember that last time that we met, we considered verse 1 of this psalm. And we saw how Christ in his humanity, he waited on the Lord. Um, and in that wait, it was a two-folded wait. And, and first we see that in an active ongoing wait throughout his life, that is, waiting for his hour to come, and we're waiting for him to reveal himself as the Messiah. Well, secondly, uh, in a more intense form of waiting, he was waiting for, after his hour to come, that there was a very passionate waiting that he did, and it's seen in the Garden of Gethsemane, going through the crucifixion, through the death and resurrection, and finally ending his wait with his glorification being seated at the right hand of the Father. We also considered how we wait on the Lord, and that our wait is, wait is also twofolded in nature. First, it's, it's a wait in our, our lifelong sanctification that we do to become more Christ-like in our life, uh, to be conformed to his perfect image. And the second type of, type of waiting that we do, the more intense type of waiting that we do, is, is our wait on Christ to return, to collect his elect, so that we too may be glorified and be in his presence for eternity in the new heavens and in the new earth. So let's read Psalm 40 together. And as I read this psalm, there's a transition I want us to notice in verse 11. And that transition is primarily what we're going to base the second half of this meditation on today. So let's read the word of, the God, word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And it is here in verse 11 that we see this transition. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils 
have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame who and disappointed altogether who, who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Amen. Well, this morning I wanted to consider the second half of this psalm. As I'd mentioned, this is a messianic psalm, and that means it's, it's referring specifically to Jesus Christ. And more than that, it's, it's not just referring to Christ, but Hebrews chapter 10 actually confirms that these are Christ's very words. It's Christ himself speaking these words in the psalm, and Again, the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 10, they've been a psalm of rejoicing. Christ is seen crying out to the Lord, waiting to be delivered, suffering on the cross, dying and being raised again to life, and then rejoicing because of God's deliverance. But now, in verse 11, we see that the psalm abruptly transitions. Now, There's a plea to God for deliverance. Look again at verses 12 and 13 with me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now, I've said that it's Christ who is speaking these words in this psalm, and I'm including these words here as well. And when I say that, most of you should have red flags pop up. Because the Bible makes it explicitly clear that Jesus, though tempted in every single way possible, he never committed a sin, not even in his thoughts. And in fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 states clearly, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But additionally, Jesus, though he is fully human, he's also fully God. And being fully God, that makes him unable to sin. It's it's completely contrary to his nature. And this has to do what we call the impeccability of Christ, but I'm not going to get into that here today. But my point is that this second half of the psalm, it's really a paradox Uh, meaning it's completely contradictory to what and who we know Jesus is. That is, sinless perfection. So, how could Christ confess that his iniquities have overtaken him in verse 12? And why would he describe his sin as being more than the hairs of my head? Well, not my head, but his, I'm sure. 
Or why, why would Christ, who we see in the first half of this psalm, after being completely delivered from his suffering, who has been glorified and has now ascended to heaven, who sits on the throne as the King of kings and Lord of lords, now in verse 13, plead to God the Father for further deliverance. I see two subtle things happening here. If these really are Christ's words, then I need to answer two questions. How and why? How can Christ in Psalm 40 confess sins? And secondly, why in Psalm 40 is he confessing sins? Well, to answer these questions, we we should remember the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah refers to Christ as a man of sorrows. And why is that? Well, it's because Christ, he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows as our sin bearer. We need to understand that Jesus identifies with us and our sin. And he does so in such a way that scripture actually says that God made him to be sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as our sin bearer, when Jesus died on the cross, his righteousness was imputed to us, and our sins were imputed to him. We see this pictured in the first half of the psalm as Christ goes through his suffering and then he's rejoiced through his, his deliverance. This, this has been actually been known as the, the great exchange, uh, the exchange of our sins for his righteousness. But we need to remember, though we have Christ, Christ's righteousness, until we're glorified or until Christ comes again, we still have indwelling sin in us. And so this is one of the reasons that the incarnation of Christ is so, so important. Uh, Because Jesus, he experienced life in this world too. He, He knows our struggles and he knows our weaknesses. He knows our hearts when we we truly seek forgiveness. Jesus has been tempted and abused, as you all know. And because he's experienced our human condition and has our human nature, he doesn't just identify with us theoretically. He identifies with us experientially. Uh, Yet he did that without ever succumbing to the sins that we do. Um, Think for a second about Christ's baptism. The baptism of Jesus Christ is the same paradox that we see here in, in Psalm 40. The book of Mark describes John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Christ having no sins to repent of and nothing to be forgiven for, he still subjects himself to this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the exact same question can be asked here, that is, How can he be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? 
It's the same in Psalm 40 as my question was earlier. How can he confess sins? Well, they both have the exact same answer. He doesn't. He isn't being baptized for the forgiveness of sin any more than he's confessing sin in this psalm. But, in both cases, he is identifying himself with man in their judgment of sins. Because Jesus so intimately identifies himself with us, he, is, he really distinguishes the difference between sympathizing with someone and empathizing with someone. Sympathy is when we feel compassion for someone and what they're going through. But empathy, it's, it's when we put ourselves in their shoes. And we can only do that when we've experienced the same things that they have. So Christ isn't confessing his sins for deliverance, but he identifies with ours. And in the psalm, Christ in his empathy, as the one who was made sin for us, he pleads for our deliverance as though it was his very own, as though the sins are his very own. Well, the second question of why in the psalm is Christ confessing sins, or to ask that another way, after what we've just talked about, even if Christ does identify with our sins, why would he then need to confess those sins? After all, the work on the cross is done and salvation is secured, right? After Jesus ascended to heaven, he returned to the former glory that he had before his incarnation. However, when Jesus did ascend into heaven, he didn't take a break. Many Christians, if you were to ask, what has Jesus been doing since the death and the resurrection, since he's ascended into heaven, after making full atonement of sin, what has he been doing up there? Well, he'd probably ask, answer, well, he's in heaven. We know that. He's sitting on his throne. We know that. Probably doing, I don't know. Maybe he's doing nothing. I don't know. They, they wouldn't really know. They'd tell you, well, Jesus himself, he, he said it's finished, right? So what is there for him to do? Well, would they be right in those answers? And I would say no, they're, they're not right. And it's, it's because the, the work that he did to secure salvation on the cross is finished. They're right about that. But his care for the redeemed, his continued care for the redeemed, is not finished. So again, the question I want to answer in regard to the psalm of why is Christ confessing sins? Well, before I answer that again, some scholars argue that it's at this point in the psalm that it's actually reverting back to David speaking in the psalm and that these are his sins that he's confessing. But that's the beauty of this psalm. It's not David speaking. It is Christ. It's Christ speaking these words, but he's speaking them on behalf of David. He's speaking them on behalf of us here today. He's speaking them on behalf of his body, the church. And he's speaking them on behalf of those who, in the future, are going to be called to glory. 
Christ will continually speak these words until the number of his elect are complete and in his presence. We see that in Psalm 40, Christ is actually interceding on our behalf so that you and I one day will experience the total deliverance from sin and from all its effects. The writer of Hebrews, Paul, I mean, did I say that out loud? (laughs) The writer of Hebrews, we'll just call him Bob, confirms our answer in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, when he says, He always lives to make intercession for them. You know, there can never be enough said about the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. But we often, as Christians, we dwell on that in a a often one-sided way. It's not Christ in in the crucifixion, but it's Christ himself that we put our faith in. It's not Christ as he was on the cross, but it's Christ as he was dead, but now is risen that we put our faith in. Christ alive and living, and at the right hand of God, demonstrating his sovereignty and his authority to intercede for us. And it's not just Christ doing this. Romans chapter 8 Verse 22 says, The Spirit Himself intercedes for us. So, if we've all heard this familiar saying that if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Well, there we see the Father is also on our side. And finally, in verse 34 of of Romans, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, and here it is, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have all three persons of the triune Godhead constantly occupied on our behalf. So it's vital that we know that Christ lives for us so that he can intercede for us. But additionally, consider the first four words of of Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Jesus is interceding for us while Satan, and the name actually means accuser, Satan is accusing us, pointing out our sins that we commit in our forgiven yet sinful state, uh, just as he did with Job. Uh, But John, when he he was receiving his revelation from Christ, he affirms that that's true in in Revelations chapter 12, verse 10, when referring to Satan, the text reads, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But the accusations fall on deaf ears, because the work of Christ on the cross has paid our our sin debt in full. See, God always sees us in the perfect righteousness of Christ because of that great exchange that we see on the cross. It's God who justifies. And he cannot but accept 
the righteousness of his own son. And Christ, his intercession presents us as perfect to the Father. So this psalm, it demonstrates two things happening simultaneously. Jesus is both identifying with us in our sins, and he's interceding for us in our sins. And he's doing it in such an imponderable way that he actually speaks as though they are his sins and his deliverance, saying, please deliver me, please help me, my iniquities and my enemies have overtaken me. So I hope we can see that the answers to both of these questions, uh, they, they really, it, it, it just, it's not that Christ is confessing, it just appears that Christ is confessing sins. And, and in reality and in truth, there are sins that he's confessing. Now I want to change gears just a little bit here. And I want to reflect on, on how this psalm translates to us practically as Christians. Um, first, as we see in the psalm, it teaches us that, that Christ intercedes with us, for us. Uh, but how can the intercession of Christ apply practically in our everyday life? Um, well, when we read Scripture... We'll see models of intercession throughout. Uh, we'll see Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll see Moses interceding for the children of Israel in the Exodus. Basically, all the prophets um, were acting as intercessors. And the role of intercessor does apply to all Christians today. And in fact, God calls all Christians to be intercessors. Scripture tr- strongly affirms this, and in fact, it actually refers to it being a sin if we don't. The prophet Samuel, acting as an intercessor in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, he revealed this. The passage reads, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Jesus has closed the gap between us and God when he died on the cross and was resurrected to life. And because of the work of Christ, not only can we intercede in prayer for other Christians and the lost, asking God to grant requests according to his will, and it, but as I've shown, we're required to. And we should see that this is a, a wonderful and exalted privilege we have in approaching the throne of grace boldly before, with our prayers and, and with our supplications. I think that's just a real blessing for us. Well, second, I see that in this psalm, Christ also identifies with us, and we also identify with Christ, in a practical way, that is. When we became saved, we took the name Christian. Christian is a term that immediately identifies uh, all of us with Christ. But exactly how is what I want to ask. You know, Christ, he's God, and, and we're just humans. But that is exactly how. 
we identify with Christ in our shared humanity. In my last communion meditation, in the first half of the psalm, I spoke of sanctification as part of what we do in the context of waiting on the Lord. Sanctification is a human experience, and in the first half of the psalm, we also saw Christ in his humanity. Our sanctification ties directly into how we identify with Christ as humans. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies, that is Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit, and those who are sanctified, that is us, all have one source. That one source is our humanity, both Christ's humanity and ours. And how do I know this? Well, the passage in Hebrews goes on to say, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So another way of putting this is that the sanctifier and the sanctified share a common nature, expressed here as brothers. Brothers in our human nature. So you're asking, Doug, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it points to the relationship and the fellowship that we have with our Savior, our God. Uh, For example, human beings, we express our our relationship in in a lot of different ways with each other. And in a very common way we do this is by eating meals together. Um, We we celebrate Thanksgiving, and and that's just one big meal that we're talking about. Um, Well, Scripture speaks of the people that, that Christ also ate meals with in his humanity. He ate meals with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and he ate, he ate meals with his enemies, the Pharisees and the tax collectors. He also ate meals with his disciples. And these different people that Christ ate with, they all have one very obvious thing in common. They were all sinners. And this morning, we're about to participate in communion. It's a meal. And like Christ, those people that he ate with were sinners too. But Jesus in chapter 22 of Luke, verse 16, in the upper room said that he will not Again, eat this meal, this communion meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's talking about our full deliverance of the elect from the bondage of sin. He's not going to do that again until it's completed. And though Christ is not eating this meal with us today, when we participate in this communion meal, we need to remember that Psalm 40 teaches that Until he does eat this meal again, our relationship with him is active. He's not resting until that day comes. Psalm 40 teaches us that we need to remember Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, his people. But most of all, We need to remember that his promise that the next time he does eat this meal, it will be with us. 
sinners, declared righteousness by our faith in Him alone, experiencing the total deliverance from sin and its effects. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your scriptures and your promises, Lord. And I pray that despite my feeble effort to expound your word, that you would cause it to bear fruit in the hearts and our lives. We pray for the preaching of your word this morning by Pastor Ken. It is our plea to you that it will draw those who are yet separated from you to unite them in repentance and faith in Christ alone. We pray for our pastor Steve as he is away preaching in Texas. We, we praise you for that church that can, and your church that continues to grow for your peace and your grace to be on that congregation. We ask that you bless Pastor Steve and his travels and return him safely back to us. Lord, we, we give you all our thanks. We give you all our praise. And we pray that Christ receive all the glory. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.